This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Christine Giorgio, a third year MRF student at Columbia GSAP. I'm speaking with Sheila Kennedy and Frano Violich, who co-founded Kennedy and Violich Architecture, KVA Maddox, in 1990 in advance of their lecture on October 1st, 2018. Thank you for speaking with me today. Um, so jumping right in, I uh, wanted to talk about the, um, how the demands of climate change and global conditions have expanded the traditional domain of architecture, such that many contemporary architecture practices have become architecture and such as architecture and teaching, architecture and writing, architecture and research. And since uh, 2000, you have located your R&D unit, Maddox, within your practice. Your projects engage with climate change needs, emerging technology, public need, and user agency. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your office ecology. Um, who are the types of people that work in your office? and how both the research and practice are engaged project by project. I think um, in, in essence, um, although there are a lot of expanded fields, more and more I think we're trying to understand, it's, it's sort of interesting, um, and tonight we'll talk more about this, but we're trying to understand the agency within our disciplinarity. In other words, what is central to architecture and how can that affect um, shifts, how can that have impact, how can that have agency. And so um, although we do have a material research unit that's called MADX and it is embedded in our practice, for so many years now there has been very little distinction between KVA and MADX um, that I would say that the two are, are seamlessly um, interwoven. So we would probably take the position that research is not separate from architectural practice, but it's rather through architectural practice, through the kind of discovery that comes from design, that new knowledge is created, new ideas are created, and that is a form of research. Yeah, I think from the culture standpoint, the kind of people that we attract in the office are people who have interests that we share, uh, people who really enjoy uh, looking outside of architecture for inspiration for ways to innovate through materials, through technology, through integrating um, systems. And we like to push all of those ideas. And so what happens is that the architecture that we create is, is it's challenged uh, and our, our clients are challenged. And in the end, we get the kind of results that excite that excite people and that attract more uh, more more people who want to do projects whether at the scale of the building or whether they're they're at the scale of the of the industrial product if you will of the of the object mm -hmm. so the projects really from the the scalar standpoint I mean scaling up is really a challenge to do when you're doing the kind of work we do uh, at least it would appear that way but because we can simultaneously work with the studs and the, and the steel and the kind of conventions of architecture, yet at the same time balance that with the kind of 
sensors, uh, the you know LED, the, the the solid state technologies, we can integrate those two and make a kind of combined architecture that is hopefully smart. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I, I agree with what Fauna said, and I think that people at KVA would, would uh, share certain uh, trajectories of interests, but also would really be interested in making things um, at all scales. Right. So um, it sounds like you're also talking a bit about prototypes mm. in that regard. And I wonder how you guys use prototypes in your process, and um, at what point do you start making them? And at what point in the design process do you begin to define materials? And maybe that gets challenged later in the process and you have to redefine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, there's been so much um, written about um, the, the kind of shift in our culture to images and the kind of exchanges of images, and I think all of that is accurate. So I have no real way of explaining um, this other than to say that objects and things uh, have a lot of power still. Maybe because we do live in this uh, moment of digital imagery and the kind of pro pro proliferation of, of, um, of images online, when the architect has the ability to put something on the table, so to speak, um, a portion of something, a chunk of, of a building envelope, um, a piece of furniture, whatever it might be, it's a very powerful thing and it speaks to people. And so <sighs> prototypes have a kind of a rhetoric. Um, they, are, they can become quite rhetorical and people can really understand what's intended when they see something in front of them. They can take it apart, contractors and subcontractors can take it apart, but once they see it once, um, it's sort of indelibly, um, they understand it in a kind of visceral way, it's inde indelibly in their mind. So it's pretty important um, to be able to prototype things, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people ask us like, what new materials do you work with? And at some level, the materials are materials. I mean, they are, what, what the important thing is how you transform them. So how can you take wood, which is a material, yeah, how can you take ancient materials, ancient materials that are thousands of years old, very raw, you know, uh, natural materials. Um, but you know, even this, the solid state technologies are also made of materials. So what the challenge for us is to combine them and recombine them and misuse them in a way to, in a, in a way, almost create, create a new material, but you're not gonna go out there and pick a new material out of a catalog because then you'll be disappointed, um, at least, you know, in terms of the way we, we work. Um, so I, I noticed that the word soft appears often in your work and um, seems to imply a sort of reciprocal relationship between the material thing and the human operation of that thing or within that space. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about what soft means in your work. Yeah, it is, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the, in the talk tonight, but um, it is a way of essentially um, collapsing categories that have been constructed um, over time and, and certainly through the project of modernism. Um, and trying soft softness um, for us is um, thinking about the world, things in the world, um, uh, nature, technology, the built environment as parts of a single system, a single spatial system. And so it's really 
as you said, about um, human interaction, um, but also networks um, and materials and systems um, that are speaking to each other and that are uh, where, where we strive to think of them as being one thing, which sounds a little trivial, like nature materials, built environment, one thing. But if you think about the city, it's, it's obviously a construct and you know, people will go away from the city to get into something else as if there was no nature in the city or that the effects of urbanization don't extend into the landscape far and away. There's no place on this planet that um, is sort of untouched by urbanization. So those categories are very pernicious. Um, they've been around for a long time and they're inherited in our minds as architects. I speak broadly here, but they're also inherited in almost all schools of architecture. And um, I think it's a creative challenge to try to think differently about those categories. So softness is our attempt to try to put a word to remind us to, to try to think differently. I wanted to also talk about your essay, um, Unpacking the Wall, in David Benjamin's um, Embodied um, Energy and Design book. It's, um, it's, it's something we've been thinking about here at GSAP. Uh, we've been looking a lot at um, not just sustainable design, but um, material flows and questioning where materials come from, how they're sourced, how they get to the site. And um, you focus in that essay, Sheila, on the, um, the hollow wall. Um, and talking about, uh, you discuss three um, different paradigms that challenge sort of mainstream material culture. Uh, the soft house as the carbon bank paradigm, the river first project as the nature factory paradigm, and the uh, Meister Group headquarters as a perpetual, perpetual building paradigm. Can you talk a bit about the conditions that um, led to the invention of these specific paradigms, maybe um, the roles of both necessity and also imagination? Hmm. Okay, remind me about the necessity and the imagination part, okay, if we don't, if we don't get to that. Um, that sounds interesting. Um, well, you know, when you do work um, over couple of years, period of years, um, you actually can look back on your work and you can understand the ideas that were in the work and ideas that, that, that fell out. Um, and so a lot of what we do as principals is kind of um, be curators of, of the sort of history of ideas in our work. And when we find a, a new project, we try to make that match between what um, left uh, out ideas or, um, in the work, or how could we advance ideas that are in the work further, and what are the opportunities of the new project and the ideas to fit. And so you can't help but construct um, categories, and of course those categories sort of overlap. So Nature Factory was about kind of taking two terms together. One has a sort of a industrial um, kind of valence factory and then nature we assume you know with, with this kind of inherited mindset that that's going to be somehow free of industrialization and in nature factory that shift sort of asks us to think about those things as um, interchangeable um, so we look at how nature could be the factory that provides us with materials in architecture for example um, carbon banking is pretty closely related to the idea of perpetual building um, but what if we, in the future, did not make 
new buildings everywhere. What if we sort of worked on a building for the whole of our career, so to speak? It might be somebody else's building, it might be your own building, um, but it would be like a series of kind of renovations and transformations and a, a very different temporal scale kind of placed on the work of architecture. So the idea of carbon banking is, is part of that. And um, unpacking the wall is probably the overarching um, trajectory. Um, it's the wall has been um, incorporated. Um, there are many monopolies um, on the wall. And in David's uh, book, we, we put the Sackett uh, plastering the wall um, advertisement uh, in because it was an example, sort of a visual example, of how um, corporations in this country took over the building materials that make up our walls and still, still own them, in fact. And, um, how can, so, so the idea that, that architecture could take back the wall away from these kinds of corporate hands while still being in the practice of architecture, in other words, not doing academic projects only, but really trying to realize them in, in, out in the world, um, is what's behind um, this unpacking um, of the wall. And when I say unpacking, I mean both in a kind of a introspection, examining what was inside the wall, um, infrastructure, um, structure, um, certain kinds of standard um, dimensions and so forth, and, and typologies, wall types as they're called, looking at that and um, also reclaiming um, the wall as a kind of political act, um, reconceiving of the wall, and the wall is obviously vertical, a uh, vertical, surface, but it could be the floor, it could be the ceiling, it could be something diagonal, but how do our, our exterior envelopes in architecture um, transform given the needs of climate change and resource scarcity? Um, and so it's pretty, it's pretty important for architecture to take back the wall. Yeah, I think I had brought up necessity and imagination, yes. knowing that the, nece <laughs> the necessity part was probably pretty might be obvious, and you mentioned you know uh -huh. cl climate change right. and the, those sorts of demands, um, but the imagination, imagination yeah. Um, Fauna can also speak to that uh, as well, but I think you know in our kind of crisis, we live in a crisis mode, and we live in a highly uh, unusual time at, at this at this moment, obviously, and um, it, it's pretty easy for architecture to go into crisis mode um, because there are so many grand challenges and they're unmet. Um, but that also can sometimes lead to a um, limited register of response um, because you're in crisis mode. So it's like solve, resolve, fix, mend, uh, those kinds of operations. And um, sometimes the longer term way forward would be to actually e imagine the world differently and then just create a set of instructions you know, to get there from the present. Um, and so the ability to take um, challenges like energy, um, resource scarcity, um, material flows, uh, and reimagine them is not trivial, um, but it's a super important um, part of what we all are trained to do as architects, right? The architectural imagination is, is mm -hmm. one of the most important parts of an architect's education. I, th I love that part of the question. That was my favorite part because <laughs> the, we, in these crisis situations, we often get into a kind of a defense mode. Build a wall, build a barricade, stop it from coming in kind of thing. And when one uses 
the imagination. You begin to think, and it's related a little bit to the question of the soft uh, strategies. You begin to think of ways to go outside of that kind of direct, hard uh, approach toward uh, how to deal with these these uh, these crises. So, um, as an example, you know, one starts to think about well, if you're doing a passive house, for example, and you have to shut all the windows, you can't even open the windows, and you have to build walls which are, you know, 18 inches thick. Yeah, how how maybe you materials, right? right? How do you begin to think about not only the materials but about like engaging with nature? For example, how can the nature come in? For example, the sound of insects or the feel of the breeze. So those are kind of that's the imagination at work that's slipping slipping through these kinds of defensive mechanisms that we have to stop the the um, this kind of. Anthropocene moment that we're in. It's it's rather accepting it as it is, mm -hmm. and then beginning to look at ways to hack, to map, to sense your way out of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, because um, climate change is is in some ways conceived of a lot of times as a technical issue. This kind of problem solving crisis mode comes forward, but of course it's really a cultural issue. And so as a cultural issue, um, we, we need ideation, we need imagination, we need um, you know, different ways of thinking, testing, dreaming, all of those things. The idea of sense, sensing your way out of it and, and imagination can kind of help you to um, problem solve without being a reactionary problem solver, um, which is why I also love the framework of thinking in paradigms because it, you mentioned being in crisis mode, and I think those those major paradigm shifts happen as a, in crisis mode or at, well, maybe after crisis mode. Like turning points. Turning yeah. points are like I'm thinking um, Hurricane Sandy here in New York was like a, mm -hmm. was a paradigm shift for for design, mm -hmm. and um, nobody knew what to do in the moment or leading up to it, but slowly afterwards. But how can using imagination is maybe a way to to get ahead of that and to, to design our way ahead of those issues, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. So I wonder, with, with this sort of paradigm thinking and, and the imagination, do, these, do you feel these partial paradigms that you've written about um, are scalable or repeatable in other projects? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, they're imperfect paradigms, um, and our work imperfectly exemplifies them. Um, but they are paradigms, so they're much broader, much more general than any any work that engages them, any response. So I, I would think that they would cross scales. Um, they are really the most interesting thing, and our work responds the way our work responds. Um, but I think um, those paradigms will be around for a while. Your projects address so many big picture issues, but they also carefully consider circulation and experience. And uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about the, some of the psychology of, uh, around the materials that you develop. So a little bit more about the, the user experience within those spaces. I see. Um, mm -hmm. Are you thinking of a particular project I'm, when I'm you say circulation? I'm thinking like in particular um, soft house. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the way that this, the choreography between the user and the materials mm -hmm. is really important in, yes. that, in that space. And also, I think the, um, the Meister Group headquarters is, is an interesting project for that, the other paradigm of, of a 
perpetual building and mm-hmm. and um, sort of a, a very adaptable space. Yeah. Um, well, I think the circulation is very important, um, and we 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 talk a lot about it. So that's an extremely perceptive um, observation because I think circulation is not a topic that's that's discussed much, just like space and kinds of space are not really a topic that's discussed much, maybe because we are in the, in the crisis moment, so that doesn't sound like a technical problem. It sounds like extra, right? Why should we have that? Um, but I think that um, the relationship between the body and movement and, and the kind of, um, and, and the gaze and touch, gaze still from modernism, but also touch, um, are super important in um, relation making in architecture. So you brought up the example of the soft house, but it's an extremely simple form. It's like a you know bo- slender box of wood, um, but it's all wood, um, like 100% radically wood. And how um, our uh, light emitting and energy harvest harvesting curtains sort of transform from a normative parallel to the facade position that you would expect curtains to be like in your aunt's house or something to something that's figural or that encloses the body is is really um, at the essence of how that that particular um, project space transforms Um, there's a very simple stair um, in that project and so you go forward and you go back as you rise up through that project. And every time you go forward, you see the energy harvesting canopy. And every time you go back, um, you see the kind of light of the curtain. So um, super simple, very basic, um, but powerful because it's been so reduced and kind of um, made essential, right? Essentializing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as Bruno says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's also uh, something else going on with this idea of circulation and the psychology of how somebody feels in the space. I mean, circulation we sort of under, can understand as how, do you, how you get from two points, uh, and, and then the psychology between that. I, th- I think what we've tried to do is do two things, really, and that is to create the possibility where, cir- where circulation is disrupted. Uh, and the result of that is that you're going to find social spaces. And social spaces have been increasingly important in the programs that we've been working with for, for quite a long time. Uh, so I think that's, that's uh, a really important thing to, to include. It's really, in a, in a way, kind of challenging this question of, of circulation. That sociality, that sociality um, and kind of human contact and even collaboration um, has to occur kind of uh, outside of a system. Yeah. Um, that you need to break it or disrupt it in order yeah. to kind of create a sort of safe spot for yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, and I'd say the second thing would be to try to create spaces that raise questions. And the questions are generally framed by the materials that we work with. So how that material is transformed, what's integrated in that material, uh, why these two materials don't necessarily, you know, are, are juxtaposed in a way. Raising those questions means that you can't just circulate through a building. You're kind of stopped and you're asked to wonder. And I think that the, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist here, but I think any time that you're asked to stop and ask a question of yourself of a building, 
uh, I think that that would create a kind of sense of human comfort because there's a kind of a dialogue which has been lost. Yeah, yeah that's really beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you guys for, yeah, for speaking thanks. with me today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for chatting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good Thank questions. you. Great questions. Thank yeah. you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu. Thank you.